Yeah, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I can think of no greater introduction, no well wishes as meaningful and as powerful as grace and peace. Lord, thank you that you have given us grace and peace through your Son, Jesus Christ. As as we go and begin our study through Ephesians, may we be lifted up into the heavens and see all the glorious riches that you have given us in your Son. It is by his name that we pray now that we would be uh, strengthened and encouraged and grow in wisdom and faith. In his name we pray. Amen. So in the opening two verses, we are shown to use the language that Paul will use a little bit later. What is the breadth and length and height and depth of this letter to the Ephesians? I gave the series a title, Ephesians, Truth That Sings. I thought that was a beautiful way of, of putting the power and the, and the beauty of what Ephesians is. And I, I got it from an old Scottish theologian named John McKay. And he, uh, he said that the book of Ephesians is the distilled essence of the Christian faith. It is truth that sings. It is doctrine set to music. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers and expositors who preached both on a very long series, it's 14-volume series on the book of Romans. It took him years to finish his, his exposition of Romans. He also did a very long series through the book of Ephesians. And when he compared the two in his first sermon, starting off the Ephesians series, he said that if Romans is the purest expression of the gospel, Ephesians is the most majestic expression of the gospel. It's because here, Paul looks at salvation from the vantage point of heaven. You know, in Romans, Paul has, especially in Romans 7, you get the inward struggle, the tension of what it looks like to be saved and also still painfully aware of how much of a sinner we are, how we all have ways we are disobeying God, ways we're disobeying uh, people in authority of us, w- ways we're disobeying and breaking relationships that we, are, that we have, and the ways that we just continue to harm ourselves. But in Ephesians, when we touch on that, it's a lot more of a top-down view. We get to see what God is doing in a very powerful and different perspective than in Romans. And it's from the, uh, this vantage point and in these opening verses that we get what I'm really painfully aware now that Dr. Betty's back here and Lydia's back here, but I'm going with the theme of music, so I'm going to try to step out into some music theory, which I know nothing about. Um, So if I am wrong, Dr. Betty can correct me later. I looked up definitions, but in these opening two verses, we get what music theory calls the, the key to this song of Ephesians. And I don't know much about music theory, so one of the definitions I looked up was that a key is a group of pitches or notes that form the harmonic foundation of the entire piece. Now, there are many notes in this theological symphony that is the book of Ephesians. My question today is, what are the key notes that Paul keeps referring back to? What are the foundational pieces that hold the whole letter together? 
The truth that Paul sings over us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is found in these two key notes. It's the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The opening note, as we would expect, is the grace of God. That's the introduction, right? In, uh, for, in beginning in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If any apostle is associated with grace, it's gonna be Paul. A man who once hated Christ, who once hated the church, who spent time persecuting them, that it is only by grace that the persecutor could become one of the most influential preachers the church has ever had. It's only by grace that he could uh, author the majority of the books that we have in the New Testament. And he himself was incredibly aware of how significant grace was. This is not theology in the abstract for Paul, right? If truth is singing, if this is doctrine set to music, we know that this deeply impacted him. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's recounting the Lord's, the, the power of Christ's resurrection, he talks about the key part of that is that it was real and true and that the apostles saw him. And if it wasn't enough just to reveal himself to 11 of his closest friends, the Lord appeal, appears to 500 other people. And then if that wasn't enough, Paul says this, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. For him, the gospel of grace was so completely captivating that it turned him from persecutor to preacher. It completely transformed his lives, and so he knew it was the key to the Ephesians' transformation. The Ephesians, if they were Gentiles, they were probably worshiping at the temple of Artemis, this massive temple to a goddess. And they may have gotten uh, caught up into emperor worship. Ephesus was known to be uh, a big place where they would revere and worship the emperors of Rome. And we know that there was a temple there to Julius. We know there were shrines later built to Trajan and other emperors. The city became known for its mysticism and sorcery and enchantments. So he knew that if the gospel was going to transform people that practice that type of pagan worship and turn them into worshipers of Jesus Christ, it was by grace. He may have been surprised to know that we still read his letters today. I don't know the, the psychological impact of being inspired by the Holy Ghost to author scripture, whether he actually knew that someday this would be canonized, but he would not be surprised that the reason there's a church here in Marion, Alabama, 2,000 years after he wrote Ephesians is because the same grace that was at work in your lives was at work in the Ephesians' lives, was at work in Paul's life. And grace is so important. It's such a key note to this that he begins with the letter with grace and he ends the letter in grace. You don't have to flip there, but at the very, the very last verse of Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 24, Paul says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The note of grace bookends the epistle to the Ephesians. It's, I'm going to say it again, it's another music uh, term. It is the first movement of this symphony 
of truth. And the first movement is basically these first three chapters. Out of the 12 times that the word grace is used, nine of those times occurs in these first three chapters. There is a second movement in the book of Ephesians, that is chapters four through six. There it primarily focuses on how we are to respond to this grace that we've received. And we'll talk about that later when we get to those chapters. But for right now, this first movement in this symphony of theology is grace. And two things are important for us to notice regarding grace. First, it is lavish. Paul says in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And then in chapter 2, we come to one of the most powerfully elegant passages of God's gracious action towards us. And notice how Paul explains it. In in chapter 2, in the first three verses, he talks about we were dead in trespasses. We were sons of disobedience. We lived according to the passions of our flesh. We were selfish. We were terrible. And then he writes, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us, us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's been said many times, and uh, of course, if you know me a little bit by now, uh, I like Christian rap. I've said I have a favorite Christian rapper. The first time I heard this term was from my favorite, a guy named Shylin, who's phenomenal. And he raps a song all about God's grace. And he threw this in there. Grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. God puts, lavishes us with riches. And I'll do the Greek pastor thing here for a moment. The literal term for riches is riches. It's wealth, it's abundance, it's prosperity, it's, it's money, it's treasure, it's gold. It's extravagant. And that is the type of grace that he puts on us who turn to his son. The second important thing to see is that grace was given in the past. So I want to borrow a term from another great modern contemporary preacher named Alistair Begg. He's a, a pastor uh, with a great ministry uh, called Truth for Life. Uh, I listen to it pretty regularly. Uh, but he calls this the, the gospel grammar. Now, the majority of these gracious actions, the, the verbs of chapters 1 through 3, have God as the subject and us as the object. And you can see this. If you read just chapter 1 alone, You'll see this over and over and over again. In verse 3 of chapter 1, it says, God blessed us. In verse 4, it said, God chose us. In verse 5, it says, God predestined us. In 7, God redeemed us. In 9, it says, God makes known to us the mystery of his will. And that's just the first chapter. In that second chapter that we were just in, talking about the, the great uh, gracious action towards us, We see in in verse 5 of chapter 2 that God made us alive. By grace you have been saved. But he keeps on going. In verse 6 he says 
God raised us up and seated us in heavenly uh, places. What a glorious picture that is. When we think about God lifting us up and placing us and seating us in heavenly places. And this is not actually unique in a sense to Paul. The, the, in the Old Testament, we hear about God doing something like this, where it seems that he is reaching down, if you will, and actually doing something that, that nobody else could do or that everybody could do in the sense of an action. So that was kind of confusing. To give the example, in the story of the flood in Noah's ark, all the animals come to Noah. Noah gets all the animals on the boat. Who shuts the doors? The text in Genesis says, God shut the doors. God sealed Noah's ark to save them, preserve them, to be faithful to the promises that he gave to Noah. Fast-forwarding centuries, the promise being kept that they were, faith, that they were kept faithful and safe and land, landed on Mount Ararat, God was faithful again to another servant, Moses. At the end of Deuteronomy, in chapter 34, Moses dies. It says he goes and dies in the land of Moab. He's on a mountain. Who buries Moses? The Lord. In Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 6, it says the Lord. He died before the Lord, and he buried him. The he referring back to God. And it says after that, nobody knows where Moses is buried. In this intimate moment, God lays his servant to rest. That same hand that sealed the ark of God's covenant, that same hand that buried the great prophet Moses is the same hand who reaches and raises you up out of sin, out of failure, out of slavery, out of death, and seats you in heavenly places. There is no other arm that can do that. There's no other way we could do that. Not only is, is God doing all of the action in this first movement, it's all done. That's why I was talking about it being gospel grammar. All of these verses are in the past tense. These are all things that have been done to you and for you. You have already been chosen. You have been predestined. You have been redeemed. You have been made alive. You have been raised, and you have been seated by God in heavenly places. This is his sovereign action so that no one can boast. It is riches, it's lavish wealth poured out on us who are but paupers, and beggars. This makes even Elon Musk or any tech billionaire, it should make them put their heads down when they're trying to compare their material wealth to the riches that God has shown us. And it's important for us to see that the terms that Paul uses here are definite terms. I mean, death is pretty definite. That's why he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, you were dead in trespasses and sin. I have never heard of someone having been resuscitated through CPR say, can you believe what I made my lungs do? They couldn't. They needed somebody to pound on their lungs to get them to start breathing again. The, the grace that we receive is not something that we were just primed and ready to receive. It's not something we were foreseen to anticipate, that we were foreseen that we were going to choose. It is God looking at us when we had no ability to choose, no ability to accept, and changing our hearts. We do not save ourselves. We are not lavish. We are not able but he is. Moving on then from that first note of grace to the second note. The second key note to Ephesians is this. It's, it's an answer to a question. How do we receive the grace? 
If this is such lavish, wealthy grace, how, how do we get it? And continuing with the idea of gospel grammar, the answer repeated throughout all of Ephesians is a prepositional phrase. It's in Christ. The most repeated words or this one, you know, these two-word phrase in Ephesians are in Christ or in him, and the him there is referring back to Christ. And then one time he call, Paul calls Christ the beloved, so in the beloved. And that phrase, this prepositional phrase, is, occurs a total of 22 times throughout the whole letter. So look at me at again in verse 1 with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Just as this letter starts with grace, so it starts in Christ. And remember all those examples I gave a few moments ago describing God's actions towards us? They're all done in Christ. God blessed us, we said, but he blessed us in Christ. He chose us, but he chose us in Christ. He predestines us in Christ. And further, talking about this movement, this emphasis of the first three chapters on God's gracious action to us, this phrase in Christ that happens 22 times, 18 to 20 of them are in just the first three chapters. The foundation that Paul wants the Ephesians to get is that you were dead in trespasses and sins, made alive by the grace of God that is in Jesus Christ. So it is God's gracious action to us in Christ. And so why is that so important? Because God plans to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth, in him. That's what he says in verse 10 of chapter 1. God is doing the action, but it is in Christ that we are blessed, chosen, predestined, and everything else that we've heard. It is all from him and through him and to him and are all things to him. To God be the glory forever. Amen is the way Paul ends or does the doxology of Romans 11. So how do we receive God's grace? We receive it in Christ. So then what does that mean for us? It means that we're called saints. That's what he calls the Ephesians, right? In verse 1 again, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The most common name of a New Testament believer is saint, which just means a holy one. If you are at all self-aware, you might have trouble with this one. We don't really feel sainty, right? I mean, a saint is someone who is, you know, set apart, who's, who's different. We have this mistaken view, mostly from, from Catholicism, and some of the veneration of the saints, the Mother Teresa types. I mean, you know, they give away everything and they go to Calcutta, or they spend all of their time, you know, uh, ministering to the poor, or they, you know, starve themselves until they're, and spend all their time in prayer, venerating and thinking on Christ until they're taken up into these mystical experiences, right? That's, that's what a saint is. It's not, not me, because I'm a sinner. I'm dead in my trespasses and sin. In our current cultural time, I think we actually do still have people that think they're saints, they think that if they do the right things environmentally or if they follow the right New Age spiritualism, I mean, people that won't believe that Jesus is the Son of God but will believe that a crystal can heal them will turn to all of these things and strive and do them so that they can be extra holy, so that they could be enlightened, or that they can work really hard to be really good and somehow maybe get a little bit better in life. But that's not the biblical picture of a saint. 
if we are following the keynotes of this epistle, then we should be able to say that a saint is a sinner saved by grace in Christ. We did nothing to deserve this. And anything we are doing now is only in response and obedience to the grace we've received. That's the second movement. That's Jesus saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll pursue this life. But it is a constant acknowledgement. As you are growing in holiness, you're going to grow in awareness of what your sins are. John Newton, the great hymn writer of Amazing Grace, who knew something about being a deplorable sinner, having been a slave ship captain and lived an incredibly uh, selfish, hedonistic lifestyle, had this to say near the end of his life. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. The Ephesians were called saints not because of anything they had done, but entirely because of what Christ had done for them. It means that we, who are actually called saints, according to the Bible, if you confess faith in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in his righteousness, not your own, then you're what the Bible calls a saint. Because the gospel works like this. It takes your filthy rags, your, your sins, and it washes them in the blood of Christ, and out comes Christ's own garments of righteousness that he puts on you, that he wraps around you so that when God the Father looks at you, he sees his son's righteousness. That's grace. That's in Christ. That's what it means to be a saint, trusting in that work and not anything you might do for yourself, especially anything you might do to think that you could earn sainthood or earn God's favor. It's already given to you in Christ. So those are the first keynotes, the first movement of this gracious symphonic theology. It is truth that sings to our hearts. One of the things that is weird, I was told recently about churches, is that we sing together. Uh, a friend of mine in RUF, the Reformed University Fellowship, that's our college ministry, said that to me. He said one of the things that kids get uh, tripped up on is when they gather from a non-Christian background and they come to like a, a large group gathering for RUF or they come to the, you know, a church, they're tripped up by the fact that we gather together and we sing. And it never dawned on me because I've always grown, in the, grown up in the church, but that's kind of weird. Where else do you gather with people in public to sing? Why would you gather in public with people to sing? It's a kind of an odd thing we do, but throughout scripture we see Singing, especially truth that sings, is sometimes the best gospel medicine that we can have. When Paul is held captive in prison, one of the times, because <laughs> he was there a lot, and uh, he sings with Silas, I believe is with him, but they sing hymns and praises to God while they're in prison. And it gives them hope, and it also helped convert one of the guards. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the great theologians uh, during World War II, who conspired against Hitler in Germany. When he was arrested for his crimes, it was near the end of the war and all these bombs were raining down on Berlin. What did he do? The guards let him out so that he would walk around and sing with the prisoners to try to calm them while bombs are dropping all around them. And he would sing the only songs he really knew to sing, hymns, praises to God for mercy and protection. And then as our, our thoughts are still with those in Afghanistan, I, I I wish I could find the clip. I remember a few years ago I saw this 
And I'll close with this. We take for granted that we get to gather and worship. We take for granted that we have so many resources, that we can, you know, freely come today and hear about this lavish grace that God has given us in Jesus Christ without fear that police are going to bust through the door and arrest us, without fear that, you know, they're going to confiscate the church property. We could go out in the street corner and declare it or have a hymn sing on the street in town square and sing out these praises to our God. Not everybody who is in Christ, just like we are, gets that luxury. And a few years ago, I saw this powerful film of a group of Chinese uh, believers worshiping in what they call an underground church. You know, it's not approved by the government. It's dangerous to be a part of one. And they're gathered, and there's about 15 to 20 of them, and they start to sing, but they don't utter a sound, but they move their lips. They still, they had the truth of the gospel in them, and they couldn't sing out loud for fear of somebody hearing them and and leaking to the police, but it wasn't going to stop them from at least doing the actions of singing, of moving their mouths and expressing praise the best they could, and to see some of these people have tears in their eyes while they're not uttering a syllable, but I promise you that had to be one of the most beautiful hymns ever echoed in heaven, to have people gathered that convicted by the gospel that they would worship so unafraid of the consequences and the only way they could do that the only reason anybody in their right mind would do that in defiance of a government or defiance of oppression or anything is because of the riches of grace they had experienced in christ jesus so let us pray to our gracious richly gracious god in thanksgiving lord we are thankful that we got to gather here again today We're excited that we get to sing the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, because there is a day, Lord, and I pray that it is not far away, that we will be gathered with the saints universal, with all those who have ever been or ever will be part of your church, and we will sing praises to our God before your throne forever and ever. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.